Ron Viaba, the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Ag and Natural Resources Agent in Bailey County, which is located in Muleshoe, Texas. I want to welcome you to the Milk Minute podcast. We will be talking with dairy industry partners to educate not only dairy owners, but the public as well. We hope this will be both informative and enjoyable for our listeners. Welcome to the first episode of the Milk Minute podcast. Today, we will be visiting with Brent Bean of United Sorghum Checkoff about the usage of forage sorghum in dairy rations. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Elite Dairy Supply of Clovis, New Mexico. Okay, so as we mentioned earlier in the introduction to, the, to this first episode, I'm, I'm joined with Brent Bean with the uh, United Sorghum Checkoff and we're going to be discussing uh, the usage of uh, forage sorghums in dairy rations today. And um, Brent, I'm glad that you were able to, to join us for this episode. This is the very first episode, so we're going to start off with you. You're going to be the guinea pig slash uh, introductory guy here on our episodes. And we do have a whole lot of episodes lined up that we're going to be releasing throughout the spring and summer. Um, uh, and, and I think that those those episodes will all touch on different aspects of the dairy industry. It just so happens that, that this topic came to light and, and I kind of wanted to visit with, with you about that. So uh, let's just jump right in and, and get after it. I, you know, uh, one of the things we talked about just right before we got started was, you know, um, what, what was the advantage or disadvantage of utilizing forage sorghum and, and does that affect milk production? And so I just kind of want to get your take on that. Uh, for a minute so that we can uh, kind of have some discussion about that. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, yeah, certainly, um, you know, certainly sorghum can be used, forward sorghum can be used by dairies, and they do use it. And, and the big advantage really to, to using sorghum is, is, is really for those producers that just don't have the water for corn. Uh, with corn, unless you make good grain, you're not going to have good quality. Uh, it's kind of a misnomer to think, well, I you know, my corn got hailed on, so it's not going to make a good grain crop, so I'll just cut it for silage. Well, you do that, and you don't have much, much actual corn grain, that quality is not going to be any good. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's just something to kind of point out. With forage sorghum, you typically don't need as much water, so you get into that, you know, dry, dry conditions, uh, uh, you're just limited on water, and then and that's, that's the reason a lot of guys are going to the forage sorghum. So would it be safe to say that, that forage sorghum produces um, more forage per unit of water use since it is such a drought tolerant uh, type, of, type of crop versus? Yeah, it's yeah, a good question. It depends. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the good, that's the, that's the answer. You know, any good agronomist is always going to give you, it depends. But, <laughs> but uh, it depends on how much water you have. I mean, if you've got enough water, uh, to grow good corn silage, then corn silage is going to outyield forage sorghum most of the time. Right. Uh, because, uh, uh, well, it just will. And so from that standpoint, corn is more water efficient, okay, and, and at the upper end is higher. But you're limited. You can only put on, we'll say, eight inches of water. Then uh, that's going to be tough for that corn crop. And so under those conditions, when water is limited, then the forage sorghum actually, yeah, is going to yield more. And so it would have a higher water use efficiency than corn when it's lowered on that scale of yield potential, you know, if that makes sense. Right. So it really just depends on how much water you're going to put on 
on that on that crop or can put on that crop on which crop is more water efficient right. if that makes sense but that's a good question it comes up all the time and and it just kind of depends on how you want to present the data to be honest oh i got you so you know you're you're very well versed in in the um in the methods and in the kind of the history of the panhandle and, and kind of watching how the water has depleted uh here in Oglala aquifer over the years and so you know typically uh, this part of, of the Panhandle, Palmer, Bailey, Lamb counties, um, you know, I, I think that even here we're seeing some um, some farmers that are being forced to make decisions on cropping methods based on water availability. So with that being said, I guess if some of these guys in this area that are, or even other areas of Texas or wherever are, are forced those decisions, at least they know that there's still a crop that they can provide given those situations that can be of use to the dairy industries that are so prevalent around here. Yes, absolutely. And I think last year with the, with the dry hot weather we had was, you know, probably illustrated that as good as any. I mean, it was just, it was just tough to make that corn crop last year, unless you really had good water. So the forage sorghums did tend to, you know, do, do better last year for that reason. And, um, you know, we know forward sorghum will kind of wait on that next rain or next irrigation. Uh, it, it does have the ability to kind of just shut down for a little bit and then you get that rain and it starts growing again where, you know, corn is, is, is more sensitive. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, forward sorghum is certainly a, a legitimate option uh, for these guys. The dairies are, are, are and will feed, feed forward sorghum. Uh, you know, some dairies like it more than others. And I think a lot of it depends on how that, uh, you know, maybe how that forage sorghum is processed and uh, when it's cut on how good that quality will be. Right. And so it has to obviously fit into their nutri nutrition program they have at the dairy. Cause I know that they work with a lot of consultants and nutritionists to, to design or tailor make something that fits their herd and, and what their milk production goals are. Um, and, and so you brought that up about, you know, um, the right time to, to chop it or, or get it out. Um, you know, I, one of the questions I did have for you that I think is interesting is it seems like the forage sorghums are so many different classes and, and, and maybe varieties that fit so many different needs. I wonder if that's an advantage versus corn silage from the standpoint of, of maybe, you know, when you get into those hybrids that are either uh, brachytic or BMRs or um, whatever the maturity level of those, of those sorghums are. So, I mean, I guess, would you, would it be safe to say that sometimes, uh, those varieties give these guys a little bit more of an added value to be able to make some of those decisions that would, that would be able to fit their programs? Well, I think choice of variety is very important, which, uh, which type of forage sorghum you want to grow and what that end use is going to be. I mean, for example, the feed yards versus the dairies. Feed yards typically don't, I mean, you know, they won't tell you this, but typically they're, you know, they don't need the quality because uh, as the, as the, uh, the dairy needs because maybe that forward sorghum is going to make up seven and a half, maybe 10% of the ration. Uh, so that, you know, they don't need a lot of quality. It's mostly for a roughage source. Okay. For a feed yard dairy, on the other hand, they typically want higher quality, uh, which means they usually are going to want, you know, a sorghum that produces a fair amount of grain. Uh, depends again, kind of get on that nutritionist on what he wants. Does he want starch or maybe does he want sugar? But, uh, but, you know, kind of depends on what that nutrition wants. Um, I think the other thing about, about the forage sorghums, there is a pretty wide range in maturities. Okay, so you can plant an earlier maturing variety, maybe where you have less water and you, you just you know, want to be able to get off quicker. 
Uh, I think that's a, a certainly a, 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 something to think about when you're choosing a variety. Uh, if you're wanting quality, if the dairy just insists, I gotta have good quality, then we know for the most part, the BMRs are typically gonna give us the better quality, uh, you know, on average. And there's some exceptions to that, but on average, the BMRs will. Uh, the, the drawback to the BMR is, is, is it has a, has a reputation of being of lodging more, but I can tell you that's really not the case anymore. Certainly when I first started working with the BMRs 20 years ago, right. yeah, the BMRs did lodge more, but they've come a long way on developing those hybrids. And if you look at Jordan Bell's, uh, you know, big variety trial she does every year and you compare BMR to conventional, there's typically very little difference. And I think a lot of that has to do on harvest timing. Uh, if you wait a little too long on the BMRs uh, and don't get in there really at you know, that soft dough stage, uh, then it does tend to go down more. But as long as you're harvesting it on time, I don't think that's the case. Now the brachytic dwarfs, and, and brachytic is just a fancy word for short internodes. Right, okay? right. It's just a shorter plant, and, uh, but it's very leafy. And typically it produces a lot of grain on, on the hybrids that have got those on. And, uh, and, and so the thought is those are gonna stand better and have a little better standability, and they probably do a little bit, but it really kind of comes down to varieties and, and the genetics on that as much as anything, and seeding rate and some other things. So I wouldn't get too hung up on a on brachytic versus BMR versus even a conventional, but rather look at, you know, what, what do I need? Do I need more tonnage? Do I need more quality? And if I need more quality, you know, let's look at Jordan Bell's test and kind of compare how some of those quality numbers come out because sometimes there may be a conventional that's right up there with a BMR, yet it has a maybe a little bit better yield. Right. And and maybe I should have backed up a little bit when we first started talking about varieties, because I think when most people think about sorghum or milo or, or maize or whatever the, the name may be in certain regions of the world, you know, uh, in my mind, there's so many different classes that fit within that family. Uh, and so we're, we're more talking about what you would see as, as your conventional sorghum, you know, for the people that don't know, driving down the road and you see the milo out there, the sorghum, but with a more leafy structure that has a lot more forage capability, not so much the hay grazers, Sudan crosses, all that stuff, correct? That's right. And that is confusing. And, and to be honest, the industry needs to change that term. Instead of saying forage sorghum, we need to call it, you know, silage sorghum, okay? Right. To indicate we're talking about a, a, a plant that's basically like a grain sorghum plant, but just taller, more right. leafy. Right. That, you know, we need to change our terminology because really forage sorghum, that term can be used to include, you know, the sorghum Sudans, your hay grazers, your Sudan grass, you know, it can kind of, kind of all encompassing. And so sometimes that's very confusing. Right. Now that being said, some of the sorghum Sudans, okay, can make decent silage. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time we're going to, we're going to recommend what I'm going to call a, a silage sorghum. Okay. Mm -hmm. Most of the time that's what we're going to recommend, but there are a few, not that many, but there's a few of those sorghum silages excuse me, uh, sorghum Sudan crosses that actually have a grain more similar to grain sorghum than Sudan, and those can be pretty good quality. So, you know, but, but as a whole, you're going to pick a, a silage sorghum, which again is more just a, more like more just a tall grain sorghum, if you will. Right. And so, you know, going back to some of the variety uh, differences and, and, and things like that, and I know that, you know, like sorghum checkoff and and AgriLife Extension and other uh, various um, organizations really put a lot of effort into uh, analyzing and producing 
uh, quality unbiased variety trials. And so I would, I would hope that uh, the end users, whether that's the dairymen or the farmers are, are looking at some of that data to make sure that that fits their region, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and by far, I mean, the test that Jordan Bell does is, is really the best one in the U.S. I mean, it really is. And I see all these trials. And, um, you know, it's not perfect. You know, there's, there's things that happen every year that, you know, maybe you wish didn't happen, but it's, it's a good trial. And, uh, and, and Jordan would tell you the same thing. And it, it, it is important to look at that data and, and, and especially look at it over two or three years and, uh, and figure out which hybrid may be the, you know, the best for you in your particular situation. You know, again, you know, you might want to pick an earlier maturing hybrid, for example. And lately you get to looking at her results and some of those early to medium maturing hybrids are yielding right there with the more fuller maturing hybrid. So I think that's something to, wow. you know, that's to certainly consider. Yeah. So, so I guess the elephant in the room for me, uh, based on my limited knowledge of, of feeding a sorghum type, any forage, I'm going to go back to the forage words to the silage word, but I want to incorporate it with the silage standpoint. Is there a, uh, is, is there a, uh, I guess, do people wonder or, or do people ever ask you, is there something there with silage related to prussic acid, nitrate toxicity, like you would see in the forage part, you yeah. know, like hay part of the sorghum? Yeah, very, very seldom do you run across that. Now, you can occasionally, if you get into some very stressed forage sorghum, uh, you know, you sometimes you can see prussic acid in that as well as higher nitrates. And, uh, uh, but most of the time not. But one, when you insile that, especially the prussic acid, that tends to want to gas off very quickly. Right. And so most of that is gone within a short period of time by the time you're ready to feed it. Okay, so prussic acid, I would say, is almost, almost practically never a problem in silage. Nitrates, sometimes it can be. Um, even the nitrates, typically in, in insiling, you'll lose maybe 40, 50% of that, those nitrates in that insiling process. Uh, but sometimes it can still be high. So that's something to test for. If you're harvesting a, a forage sorghum you know, you'll feel that it did have a lot of stress on it late. And, and what happens with nitrates, you get the, whether it's grain sorghum or forage sorghum or for that matter, corn, you know, if that, if that plant stresses and you don't have photosynthesis going on and, and that plant is not producing new growth, yet the roots are still active, it's still taking up nitrate. If that nitrate can't be converted to protein, it gets stuck in there basically. And that's when you end up with those situations where you have high nitrates and basically any plant can be potentially high in nitrates. So uh, going back and I know that, that we've talked earlier and, um, and we're, I know that you're not a, a dairy nutritionist or anything like that, but one of the questions that, that I've kind of been wondering about is, is in relation to um, how the sorghum is, uh, when it's in and then how, and I guess it's nutrient value. Um, I wonder if it's as good of an option for guys that are, um, have more, um, growing heifers or dry cows and how that fits in their diets versus, uh, the lactating herd. And I, and I know that's kind of off, off the kilter of what we talked about earlier, but, um, what do you what are you thinking about that or do you know about yeah, that yeah well typically i mean when you're just trying to maintain you know cattle on weight or uh you know in the situation that you described there typically you're not trying to produce a lot of milk for example 
then typically you don't need as high quality. And so that, that could, could make it go into your decision on, on what, uh, you know, what hybrid you're going to be growing. So yeah, that, that can enter into it for sure. Right. Well, and, and you know, I'm going to touch on the grain side of things just for a second, because uh, as we shape up into this year and going into the spring, obviously we um, have been devoid of, of good moisture. Um, and so a lot of people are talking about sorghum being uh, really, really put in the ground a lot in more areas this year than, than in the past, especially with some of the pricing and, and going on like that. I guess if you're going to do that and you know that you have an outlet for forage sorghum that's nearby, that may be an option for you as well uh, in, in times like this, or is it one of these deals where uh, the guys that are producing silage are typically always going to go back to a, a sorghum or a corn silage type situation? Uh, are, are you asking, could they use grain sorghum for a silage? No, I, I just, I'm thinking kind of outside the box a little bit and thinking about, you know, guys that, uh, you know, might, might be trying to, uh, diversify their operation a little bit more than they have in the past. I guess if they have the water uh, or if they don't have the water, that forage sorghum is maybe a good crop to go with as well in a time like this. Oh yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, it, it is. And, and typically those silage prices, they're going to be competitive with what you could get for, say you were growing a grain crop because uh, they have to be. And um, you know, I haven't heard of recent prices in your area there on, on, on what the, uh, you know, dairies are, are paying, but they, they certainly are, usually they're pretty competitive on that. So I would think they would be a, a good price uh, for, for sorghum silage right. uh, in the region. So, yeah. What do you think is the percentage of, uh, of end users, whether that's dairies or feed yards that are utilizing forage sorghum around? It's a good question. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, just be a guess if I threw out a number, but it's, it's certainly increased. Uh, over the last, uh, well, really, it's been increasing for the last ten years, but certainly probably the last three years, right? Uh, that those acreages have been increasing. Are we seeing a? I mean, are, are different areas of the United States or Texas seeing a, a definite increase in forage sorghum usage versus other places, or or not so much? It just kind of hit or miss. You no, know, I think this area where you've got the dairies and 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 where people, if, if traditionally you know that ground has had to be irrigated. So I think uh, that this certainly is an area where, uh, or a region where the forage sorghums are uh, playing a bigger part, you know, bigger part, you know, the high plains area, which I would include the South Plains, Texas Panhandle, Western Kansas. Um, there's also quite a bit of uh, forage sorghum now being used up in the north, uh, Northeast. Um, Tom Kelser is a, <clears throat> an agronomist out of Cornell that puts out a really good forage sorghum newsletter, but not forage sorghum, but forage newsletter. Uh -huh. And he's a, he's a big proponent of, uh, especially BMR sorghum. And, uh, and we are seeing an increase certainly in the forage sorghums in that Northeastern uh, area up in, again, Wisconsin, New York, and up in that area. Right. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's still, a um, another option that dairymen and farmers can use that maybe kind of isn't exactly what has always been done, but I think it's important to note that um, as long as, as long as our guys are kind of always thinking about options, then that's, uh, it's good to know that the forage sorghum side of things, especially with the variety trials that Dr. Bell has done, that there's enough data and research out there to support that being an option for guys to go to. Yeah, I think so. And, and again, you know, variety, 
variety choices. There, there's a lot of them. And, and I think the key really to make that forward sorghum successful with in, in a silage diet is, is to harvest that forward sorghum when the grain is still soft. You really don't want those kernels to get hard. Right. And then, then also when you're, when you harvest that, if you can use a, a grain processor on the cutter, that, that helps a lot too. So I would strongly encourage that because you do want all that grain you know, to be utilized by the, you know, by the cows. Right. Uh, kind of on those same lines. I mean, uh, this is kind of interesting. A few years ago, some of your listeners are going to remember uh, FS5, very popular forage sorghum that was grown out here. And um, <laughs> one year, all of that seed turned out to be sterile. You know, it's quite a deal. <laughs> so we had fields all over the place that were sterile. So they didn't produce any grain. And so, of course, the concern was, well, this quality is going to be really bad. Well, in fact, it wasn't that bad. In fact, it was pretty good. And, and the reason is because when you don't have that grain in the head, all the sugars stay in the, in the stalk. Right. Okay. And so instead of feeding starch, you're basically feeding sugar. Okay. So it's a little bit different. The nutritionists have to look at it a little bit different, but actually that stuff was pretty good quality. And so I know it's not done out here much, but, but I would seriously consider some of these male sterile hybrids uh, that, that are available and, uh, and trying to grow some of those actually for silage. I, I think people might be surprised at that. And one, when you don't have that big head up there, uh, you, you also have better standability. Right. Okay. So right. from a logic standpoint, plus you're not quite as dependent on getting it harvested at just the right time. So anyway, something to think about. That is interesting. You know what? Another thing kind of popped in my head. I know a few years ago we had a, we had quite a scare with uh, the the mycotoxin in corn silage, the fumonisin uh, issue that we had. Of course, uh, we had that because it uh, it got wet. You know, um, is that an issue that that we see in sorghum silages too, or is that not as much of a big deal? I, what do you think? Well, it it possibly can be but it very seldom is it, it it's going to occur much more often in in corn than it would would in in, in silage you know, sorghum and in fact we we pretty much just say it just doesn't happen in sorghum usually when we see a mycotoxin uh, issue with uh, particularly with grain sorghum is really when that grain has been stored uh, not in very good conditions and maybe it had corn in it before and there was some some mycotoxins present uh, in that storage, that tends to be when we have issues with, with just grain sorghum. But yeah, from a sorghum silage standpoint, uh, mycotoxins would be probably the last of my worries. I got you. Okay. Well, I know that maybe there's some guys out there that are, um, you know, utilizing what, what, we're in, what we're kind of visiting about to learn more about uh, the forage sorghum side of things here. And um, that's, that's the main goal for these podcasts is to be able to provide some education for people. And then also just the general public are interested to see what we're doing out here. You know, I think, uh, the majority of, I'm not saying, well, let me, let me backtrack that, but I think a lot of people probably think that our, the way that we're u- utilizing the water resources that we have available to us, sometimes they make, a, they make, uh, uninformed decisions thinking that we waste too much water. So it's good to know that people are maybe, uh, understanding a little bit better that we are making informed crop cropping decisions that not only benefit the environment, but also benefit the industry that drives us. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, sorghum as a whole is, is, is considered a very good sustainability crop. Uh, and then it has a good root system. It, it utilizes the water well. 
uh, typically you have more residue, you know, remaining, uh, you know, after harvest and not so much on silage because you're, you're taking it all off the field, but, but you do have more biomass underneath the ground because of that root mass. So that's a, certainly a benefit. Yeah. And you know, um, growing up on the South Plains, you know, we, we see those years where, uh, where, you know, most people, they automatically think about the cotton that's being grown, uh, when they pass through Lubbock or wherever, but, uh, it's good to see that the sorghum is, is still a staple crop for us in the panhandle that we rely on heavily. So, um, yeah. is there anything else that you'd like to add to, to us, our kind of visit about the forage sorghum usage? I mean, I know it's kind of an informal back and forth, uh, type of, yeah. uh, discussion, but just see what yeah. your other thoughts might be. Yeah. Probably something we ought to talk about, you know, is the sugarcane aphid just a little bit, okay. uh, with, with forage sorghum, unfortunately, we don't have many tolerant hybrids. And so certainly in that area uh, that, 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 that you're in, uh, sugarcane aphid can be an issue in right. forage sorghum. So you almost better plan on uh, having to treat at least once. And usually once is going to do it. Uh, and, and ideally, when you want to treat that forage sorghum, if you have some sugarcane aphids coming in, and that sorghum is getting close to the boot stage, that's probably a good time to put that application out because maybe the canopy is not quite as dense. You can get a little better coverage. And some research that's been done would, would suggest that if you can protect that crop as it's going into flowering and, and making grain uh, in that silage crop, you'll go a long way in protecting not only tonnage, but also quality. So that's kind of the best time to treat if you're gonna have to do it. Um, of course, Savanto or Transform are two good products. We have a new product called Safina. Yes, It's going to be available this year, and so I think I'll, I think I'm well. I'm sure that that's also labeled for forage sorghum. So, you know, I think a good option there. Uh, if if you absolutely want to try something or a hybrid that does have some tolerances, you know, there's four or five hybrids out there that do seem to have a little better tolerance. We certainly noticed last year, kind of in your region. Uh, some differences in a few hybrids on, on tolerance to sugarcane aphids. So, yeah, give me a call or we can talk about that. But there's there's a handful that I think are, are maybe a little more tolerant to the, you know, to the aphid than, than some of the others. Do you think that selecting those varieties that may be tolerant or on the borderline of tolerance, uh, plus their maturity level and maybe a planting date, all those factors combined can kind of help some of these guys with mitigating that problem a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think if you plant earlier or plant early as you can get by with, and, and I typically don't like to plant it before soil temps are 60 degrees, but you know, that's mid-May, something like that. Can be earlier, can be a little later, but mid, you know, 60 degrees, plant your sorghum, uh, get it up and going, plant one of these early medium maturity varieties. So you're trying to kind of outrun the sugarcane aphid a little bit. Okay. That's going to limit potentially having to make two applications, maybe then rather than the one. And then if you're really concerned and just don't want to mess or don't hope you hope that you don't have to mess with a with an insecticide application. Then consider one of these um, hybrids that has a little bit of tolerance. Unfortunately, there's not very many of them. I think in the next two years we're going to have more uh, uh, forage sorghums that are, in fact, uh, have decent tolerance to the sugarcane aphid. Right, and then of course that goes also along with uh, making sure that, based on the maturity of of your crop, uh, that you that you are. Uh, harvesting it at the correct time, um, for that to happen. And that, and so just to re reiterate that, that would be in that early dough stage, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. You want the, you know, that so when you got grain, you want that grain to still be soft, not green, but soft. Right. right. And usually that in, usually that's a pretty good indicator that you're getting around that 67% moisture or so. Even if you have to cut a little bit wet, I mean, maybe even up to 70, most of the time you're going to be okay with that. Uh, get above 70, then it's getting, you know, it's getting pretty wet. So, right. but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of what we, what we're shooting for. And then, like I said, you, you know, when you cut that, use a, use a, a grain processor and that'll help. And, uh, and hopefully all that, all that grain, all that silage will be utilized. Right. Well, and, and, you know, I think that uh, a lot of these guys know that and sometimes just a general reminder helps, but um, yeah. more more importantly, I think uh, we're trying to, trying to reach a, a multitude of li listeners here. And I think a lot of people are learning a lot of things for the very first time. And so that's kind of what we want to do on, on these episodes. Do you have anything else, Brent, that you'd like to, to offer us in terms of your wisdom about the sorghum or forage sorghum crop? Um, no, I think that covers it pretty well, but yeah, you know, you, you guys have got a really good re resource in Jordan Bell. I encourage people to call her. Uh, you're welcome to call me. That's what I get paid for to answer questions from producers. So, People are welcome to call me or shoot me an email anytime about forage sorghum or grain sorghum. Well, that's good. And I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I was able to get hooked up with you on this first episode. I, uh, I'm a good friend there with uh, national sorghum producers and Jennifer Blackburn. And okay. uh, yeah. she yeah. Uh, had, had, had informed me that I, you were the guy I needed to talk to. So I'm really, really happy. And I'm glad that that worked out. And, and hopefully uh, with these episodes, we'll be able to build upon the quality content that you were able to provide us in this first episode. And so I really appreciate you making the time for us. Uh, I will tell the listeners he was feeling a little bit bad this morning. And so uh, our schedules needed to do this today, but I'm glad that you're able to join us for the amount of time we could. And I hope you do get feeling better. You bet. Thanks. Anytime I can help you, let me know. All right. Thank you, Brent. Um, like I said, this was uh, our first episode was uh, visiting with Brent Bean with the United Sorghum Checkoff. If you ever have any questions for him, I'm sure you can find him on the World Wide Web under United Sorghum Checkoff, and his contact information, I'm sure, is on that website. And also, he referenced Dr. Jordan Bell. She's out of the uh, Amarillo Research Center with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension, and, and we can, uh, for sure, if you want to get involved with her or her trial work or just ask her some questions, call the Bailey County Extension Office at 806-272-4583, and we can sure make that work. Brent, thank you. I hope you guys uh, stay warm this weekend and we look forward to uh, working with you more in the future. You bet, John. Yeah.